to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Last week, I promised you that I would tell you about some of the news that has been ignored because of the media's emphasis on COVID-19 and the sins of the Trump administration, the riots in our major cities and the sins of the Trump administration, and the presidential campaigns and the sins of the Trump administration. The mainstream media is full of sin, as we all know. There's a lot to tell about what's going on outside of all that. The series of mysterious explosions in Iran, the ongoing effort by China to take over the world, and the reappearance of Kim Jong-un in North Korea. But before we do that, I want to talk about a couple of things that happened right here at home over the past week, and they need some attention. Last week, the National Museum of African American History and Culture, that's part of the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, they buckled to the demands of the radical movement that has taken over our city streets. The Smithsonian claims to be the largest museum, education, and research complex in the world. And it has always been the gold standard in America for history, science, and technology. And so I was shocked to see on their website the following statement. Quote, The belief of white superiority has been part of the United States since its inception. The white European imperialists who settled here believed they were inherently superior to non-white groups. These beliefs justified atrocities like the genocide of Native Americans and nearly 250 years of African slavery. After slavery, white supremacist ideologies manifest into a series of laws that would limit the freedom of African Americans, known as Black Codes or Jim Crow. White supremacy and its legacy can still be found in our legal system and other institutions through coded language and targeted practices. Unquote. All of this is true, my friends, and it's not history that we should be proud of. But it's where we started, and from there, we have made enormous progress. It's our history, and we need to own it. But consider this. Without the benefit of history to guide them, through our own history, the leaders of our nation abolished slavery, made the laws of Jim Crow illegal, opened up housing and jobs to people of every race and skin color and religion, and offered opportunity to those who wanted more. And in the eyes of the people who penned this page on the museum website, there's more. Because it went on to say, quote, If you identify as white, acknowledging your white racial identity and its privileges is a crucial step to help end racism. Facing your whiteness is hard and can result in feelings of guilt, sadness, confusion, defensiveness, or fear, unquote. The site even quotes Dr. Robin D'Angelo, who is white and who coined the term white fragility to describe these feelings as, quote, 
a state in which even a minimum amount of racial stress becomes intolerable, triggering a range of defensive moves, unquote. She wrote a book called White Fragility in which she says she wants, quote, white people to stop saying they're not racist, unquote. Since white people, she says, quote, live in a social environment that insulates them from race-based stress, whites are rarely challenged and have less of a tolerance to race-based stress, unquote. You know, this makes me sick, honestly, because it's untrue and unfair. But here's another little bit before I go into what I think. Here's another little bit that our esteemed National Shrine to America put on its website. An overwhelming, oh, this is a quote, an overwhelming majority of the nation's teachers are white. To learn about the impact of whiteness in the classroom and why this is troublesome to black students, read, and then she lists a link to an article called Why Diversity Matters, Five Things We Know About How Black Students Benefit from Having Black Teachers. Unquote. Okay, enough. Let's admit from the start that we are all, to a greater or lesser extent, prejudiced in one way or another, and that includes being racist to a greater or lesser extent. Prejudices develop early. We get them from our parents, from our friends, from the neighborhoods in which we grow up, and from the culture that we acquire from our teachers and the media. And by the way, that's all of us who have prejudices, white, black, brown, it doesn't matter, we all have them. Racism assumes that one is the victim and the other is the victimizer. And in the history of this country, it has historically been that people of color are the ones who have most often been the victims of racism. We saw it in the South before the Emancipation Proclamation and afterwards in the laws and customs of Jim Crow. We saw it in the North, too, in the attitudes of disdain for people of color by some white people in both rural communities and large cities. After the Civil Rights Act was passed in 1964, a lot changed. It got better, a lot better, but not enough. Many Jim Crow laws and customs still prevailed throughout the South, and Jim Crow attitudes still lived in the North, and they still do. It's not easy to be black in America, not even today. It's not a secret that black men are more frequently subjected to traffic stops than white drivers. And stereotypes of black teenagers and black men still make some white people nervous on the streets of our major cities. Personally, I don't think that the human condition will ever be truly free of all the prejudices that make us fear what is unfamiliar or different. Maybe that's just a sad commentary on the human condition, but I do think it's a reality. We human beings are flawed. And by the way, the hatred and fear that we feel of the people we don't know or understand lives and thrives on both sides of the racial divide. There's a great deal of black-on-white racism that shouldn't be ignored, although it often is, That has often been obvious from the recent rioting in the streets of New York City, Seattle, Portland, and Chicago, where black demonstrators call black policemen Uncle Tom and target white people on the street for no apparent reason. And another kind of violence that is most frequent but rarely reported 
is black-on-black violence, which is rampant in the inner cities and has nothing to do with racism. It has to do with a quest for power by people whose anger makes the target's race irrelevant. According to the Smithsonian website, quote, since white people in America hold most of the political institutions and economic power, they receive advantages that non-white groups do not. These benefits and advantages of varying degrees are known as, and this is in italics to emphasize it, are known as white privilege. For many white people, this can be hard to hear, understand, or accept, but it is true. If you are white in America, you have benefited from the color of your skin, unquote. There is a lot of truth to that, no doubt. And to be blunt, there's also a reason for it, and it's not racism. It's something much more basic. It's called demographics. I wonder how many people who complain about white privilege have ever considered the fact that as of our last census in 2010, 72.4% of the American population were, dare I say it, white. And only 12.6% of the American population were black. In other words, 12.6% of Americans, including black Hispanics, by the way, are now trying to take over the entire country and demanding that white Americans take a back seat. They want an end to what they call white privilege. They want black teachers for black students. They damn black policemen. And they demand overriding authority to decide how this country moves forward. Uh Uh-uh. It doesn't work that way. Or it shouldn't. But the mob has the assistance of willing dupes like Seattle Mayor Jenny Durkin, Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, and all the rest of the left-wing elected officials who have sided with the mobs of Marxists and anarchists that are destroying our beautiful cities and the property of people whose only crime is the color of their skin. America should never submit to mob rule. Never! America is a country where every voice should be able to be heard, where every person counts, and skin color, black or white, shouldn't figure into the equation. Martin Luther King Jr. dreamed of a time in his very, very famous speech when his four little children, quote, will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, unquote. And this is what we should all be dreaming of. This is what we should all be striving for. The color of a person's skin shouldn't make any difference at all. Only it does. It still does. It always has. Just like religion does and always has. And gender. It is human nature to take sides to prefer what is familiar to what is not, to choose what we can put down in order to elevate ourselves. And that is what we need to work on because, my friends, we are running out of time. The streets of America are getting wilder in the blue cities, and the mayors are letting them go. 
Chaos breeds chaos. And the damage to our cities, to the infrastructure, to our law enforcement may reach a point where it is irreversible. As the rioters continue to cancel our history, we are losing more and more of the context in which this country was created. I'm reminded of something that Carl Sandburg, one of America's great poets and commentators on American society, once wrote about the nature of nations. He wrote, quote, when a society or a civilization perishes, one condition may always be found. They forgot where they came from. They lost sight of what brought them along. The hard beginnings were forgotten, the struggles farther along. They became satisfied with themselves. Unity and common understanding there had been, enough to overcome rot and dissolution, enough to break through their obstacles. But then the mockers came, and the deniers were heard, and vision and hope faded, and the custom of greeting became, what's the use? And men whose forefathers would go anywhere, holding nothing impossible in the genius of man, they joined the mockers and deniers. They lost sight of what brought them along." Unquote. I've talked about this a lot, how when we lose our history, we lose our future as well. In these days of fear, confronted by a little understood virus that has destroyed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people, of the riots and destructions in some of our greatest cities that have destroyed the lives of even more people, in the bitter and nasty rhetoric that travels through social media in instant communication before, before forethought or good judgment can kick in. In these days where common sense is lost in a sea of hatred and revenge, where we are losing sight of where we came from, there needs to be a breath of fresh air, a ray of hope, a view of a better future. Carl Sandburg lived through some of America's worst days, through two world wars, through the Depression, through riots and famine, and yet, in the end, he had a vision of America that was indomitable. Of this America, he wrote, quote, I see America not in the setting sun of a black night of despair ahead of us. I see America in the crimson light of a rising sun fresh from the burning creative hand of God. I see great days ahead, great days possible to men and women of will and vision." Unquote. And one more quote from this great American visionary, quote, nothing happens unless first we dream, unquote. So I too have a vision of better days, my friends, but it will require people of goodwill to rise up above the hatred and bitterness of these days. It needs people with the love of this country and the courage to save it, to confront the rioters and destroyers with the strength of our duly elected government and to bring a climate of peace back to our cities and to our nation. It means making a genuine effort to get beyond the bitterness of today, to forge a new sense of brotherhood for tomorrow 
Not by calling each other names like racist and Uncle Tom. Not by calling for anarchy by Marxists intent on destroying our nation. Not the divisiveness that is tearing this country apart and, and not the hatred that has all but destroyed our ability to talk to each other. But a new consciousness of the united, mark that word, united states of America, of brotherhood, of combined effort, and a collaborative effort to make this country whole again. Our choice is simple. Return peace to our cities, to our nation, or face civil war and self-destruction. I choose peace. Now, after the break, I'll be back with some thoughts about the failure of our political process because of the failure of the left to embrace the message of our founding fathers. And in fact, because of their efforts to pervert them, the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution. And I'll talk about what we need to do to get our country back on track. So stay tuned. What if a new treatment backed by 17,000 scientific articles was proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance? What would you pay for even the smallest dose of this treatment? Well, the good news is you don't have to pay anything because these are just some of the benefits of a full night of quality sleep. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Until now, most sleep aids haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's HealthyCell.com sleep. Before the break, I talked a lot about how racism is misunderstood, about how the flaws in our nature enable our prejudices, and how that has now turned our nation into a battlefield. I think it's important, even necessary, to go beyond the casual stereotypes that shame us white Americans because of the color of our skins, that demand that black Americans receive all the benefits that white Americans take for granted and have frankly had for a long time, according to them, for allowing chaos in our streets because, as they say, black lives matter. Of course black lives matter. But so do white lives and brown lives and blue lives and the lives of all people. Every life matters. We can't be blamed for the color of the skin that we were born with, nor should we be. So why not, instead of tearing each other down and destroying the symbols of everything we resent, why not accept the place that God gave us on this earth, including the color of our skin, and use what gifts we've been given to make this country a better place for every American, for every person of every color? How about we stop complaining about income inequality and let's do something about it? Why not reach out to each other and help those of us who need assistance, help them climb out of poverty, not with handouts, but through education, training, and opportunity? 
But let's also face the fact that it's going to take effort on the part of those who want to climb out of the pit of poverty. This shouldn't be a gift or a handout, but an opportunity that one needs to strive for. Many people have done just that and climbed out of poverty and succeeded to live the American dream, achieving good jobs and high position. That takes initiative and hard work and determination. It isn't usually easy, but it can be done, and it is definitely worth the climb up. And in that, we can help each other. So let's do it. Now, I want to talk about someone who actually did just that, a woman of color who climbed that ladder and achieved huge success, but who has, sadly, wrapped herself in hate and resentment that has made her an example of how not to achieve the American dream, but rather how to work the system instead of how to make America better. Ilhan Omar is running for a primary for her re-election to the seat in Congress. She's been there now for two years. There are so many reasons for not supporting her candidacy. Here are a few. But first, some background. Omar is a former Somalian refugee who came here as a child from the terror of a refugee camp in Kenya. She's a woman of color who has lived the American dream, and she became the first Somali-American, the first naturalized citizen of African birth, and the first woman of color to be elected to national public office from Minnesota. She is also one of the first two Muslim women to serve in Congress. Rashida Tlaib is the other one. And bravo for all that. But as Congresswoman, this woman has wrapped herself in a rabid cloak of anti-Semitism and a profound hatred for her adopted country, the country that saved her and her family and gave them all refuge and opportunity. Ilhan Omar has just called for the dismantling of this nation. How did we ever get to the point where members of our own Congress are agitating to upend our Constitution, to reconstruct our country? But before we get to that, let's take a look at this Congresswoman from Minnesota who represents everything that is wrong in this country today. Ilhan Omar was born in Mogadishu, Somalia, in 1984. In 1992, she fled Somalia with her family at the age of eight and spent four years in a refugee camp in Kenya and then came to this country as part of the Refugee Resettlement Program. That's a program that, over the last 45 years, has brought nearly 3.5 million refugees to the United States from countries all around the world, particularly third world countries. Omar arrived in New York in 1995, lived for several years in Arlington, Virginia, and then moved with her family to Minneapolis. She became a citizen in 2000 at the age of 17 and got into politics soon after that. In principle, Omar's personal life should be off limits, and I normally wouldn't speak of it, except that it appears that while she was rising from a schoolgirl to a congresswoman, she either broke or skirted a number of laws. As I said, 
She worked the system. There was confusion with her first two marriages, which overlapped. So she was married to one man while living with and filing joint tax returns with another. And more than that, she has been accused of marrying her brother in order to get him into the U.S., which would be, if true, a violation of immigration laws, among others. So she married one man, lived with another with whom she had three children, eventually divorced the first in 2017, and married the second in 2018, then separated from him, then reunited, then had an affair with a Washington consultant in 2019, which they both denied, until his wife filed for divorce, after which Omar divorced her second husband and married the consultant in 2020. That's a heck of a story. But there are more important issues than her personal relationships, and that's what I want to talk about, because these issues are anti-Semitism and no less egregious, her apparent hatred of her adopted country, which she reinforces and then denies with disturbing frequency. Now, speaking of the Refugee Resettlement Program, the Board of Commissioners of Beltrami County in Minnesota recently passed a motion in a three to two vote to refuse to accept refugees in any more resettlement placements. Beltrami County is the first county in Minnesota and one of the first in the country to have the courage to reject refugee resettlement placements. It took no time at all for Representative Ilhan Omar to accuse Beltrami County of, quote, denying refugees a chance at a better life, unquote. But here's the thing about America, my friends. We have the right to welcome immigrants from other countries. And we also have the right to refuse them into our community. This country was built on the efforts of immigrants from countries all over the world. There's no way that Americans can be shamed for not taking in immigrants and giving them the opportunity to achieve the American dream. In the beginning of the 20th century, New York City, for example, was the melting pot of immigrants who came from many countries and lived side by side to create a vibrant community where the cultures blended, where the immigrants learned to speak English and became Americans. But when communities are overrun with immigrants from only one part of the world, then the need for integration is less pressing to the immigrants, and the entire American community, which has welcomed these immigrants, it loses its character. The immigrants are not absorbed into the community. The immigrants change the community dramatically, and the community that was becomes something else entirely. It did that in places like Minneapolis and Dearborn, Michigan. But Omar took the county's decision as a racist and anti-immigrant act and made a point of accusing them. And here's another thing. Omar has been criticized for her anti-Semitic comments, and she's made quite a few. In one case, Congressman Kevin McCarthy criticized Omar for several anti-Israel remarks she made in which she accused Israel of having, quote, hypnotized the world, unquote. And more recently, she tweeted, quote, it's all about the Benjamins, baby, implying that the pro-Israel lobbying groups were all about buying influence. It was a reference to an old anti-Semitic smear about Jews and money, and from a congresswoman 
It was reprehensible. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy made his opinion quite clear. He said, quote, anti-Semitic tropes have no place in the halls of Congress. It is dangerous for Democrat leadership to stay silent on this reckless language, unquote. Omar later apologized at the request, uh, maybe the demand, of Nancy Pelosi, but she added to her apology that she would continue to talk about what she called the problematic role of lobbying groups, including APAC. Omar has also made quite clear her support for the Palestinian-led BDS movement, which stands for Boycott Divestment Sanctions Against Israel. It's an anti-Israel movement which was created to destroy Israel by damaging its economy through international economic boycotts. Altogether, it seems inappropriate for a congresswoman to be supporting a group whose purpose is the destruction of one of our allies. But the most damning comment that Omar has made is one she made recently about her adopted country, the United States. Now, when it suits her, she gushes about how good the U.S. has been to her and her family. For example, she tweeted, quote, Over 20 years ago, the state of Minnesota welcomed my family with open arms. I never would have had the opportunities that led me to Congress had I been rejected, unquote. And she's right, of course. It's something for which she should be very grateful. She and her family came from a refugee camp in Kenya where her chances of achieving anything at all were slim to none. But earlier this month, speaking at an outdoor press conference, she called for the dismantling of America's economic and political systems, which in her words represent, quote, a system of oppression, unquote. She said that efforts to curb police brutality and racial injustice just don't go far enough to affect meaningful change. And she said, quote, we can't stop at criminal justice reform or policing reform. We are not merely fighting to tear down the systems of oppression in the criminal justice system. We are fighting to tear down systems of oppression that exist in housing, in education, in healthcare, in employment, in the air we breathe, unquote. I'm not sure what in the world she's talking about and how much she wants to tear down, but she is running for re-election and it sounds like her platform is going to be an anti-government platform. And sadly, she will probably win because her base in Minneapolis is largely Somalian like herself, which means that we will have to continue putting up with her efforts to undermine the government of the country that, because of its structure and ethical values, gave her opportunity that she never would have had in Somalia or in Kenya. And yet, she now wants to dismantle that structure and turn it into something more like the Somalia she ran away from. And then there's Nancy Pelosi, who is supposed to be leading Congress according to the constitutional standards that she swore to uphold, and who instead is being led around by the nose by some of the most radical elements in the House, including Omar, into a swamp of socialism, Marxism, and anarchy that is the antithesis of everything America's founders ever envisioned. And the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, has just endorsed Ilhan Omar, the woman who stands for everything America does not. Now here's a quick story I want to share with you, a follow-up of a story that needs to be covered as it continues to unfold. 
You remember that St. Louis couple who defended their home from a group of about 500 so-called BLM demonstrators who broke through the iron gates of their community and converged in front of their home, on their way, apparently, to the nearby home of St. Louis Mayor Lita Cruson. Now, the McCloskeys stood their ground in front of their home, he with an AR-15 and she with a small pistol. Mark McCloskey said that he and his wife were scared for their lives. He said, It was like the storming of the Bastille. The gate came down and a large crowd of angry, aggressive people poured through. I was terrified that we'd be murdered within seconds. Our house would be burned down, our pets would be killed. Unquote. That all seems reasonable, given the size of the crowd. And I can't say that with a mob of so many people threatening my home, I wouldn't have done the very same thing. Nevertheless, on Monday, it was announced that St. Louis prosecutor Kimberly Gardner has been investigating the McCloskeys and that on Monday afternoon, they were charged with, quote, unlawful use of a weapon, flourishing, unquote. Apparently, flourishing is illegal in St. Louis. So who is Kimberly Gardner and why is she so terribly invested in all this? Well, she was elected in 2016 and was reported to have been backed by George Soros. In fact, during her campaign, she aired a political ad that was paid for by the Safety and Justice Super PAC that was partially paid for by Soros, according to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Now, getting back to the standoff between the McCloskeys and the mob, Gardner described it this way. She called it, quote, a violent assault, unquote, against people who were only exercising their rights guaranteed by the First Amendment. She's talking about the mob, not the McCloskeys. She says, <laughs> it's too much to believe. She said, I'm alarmed at the events that occurred over the weekend where peaceful protesters were met by guns and a violent assault. Well, there was no assault. They flourished their guns. She said, we must protect the right to peacefully protest and any attempt to chill it through intimidation or threat of deadly force will not be tolerated, unquote. Okay, so here's this group of 500 so-called peaceful demonstrators who broke through a locked iron gate that is supposed to protect the community, and they approached the home of two people who lived there. Okay, 500 on one side, two on the other. That's fair. And as they approached the house, they threatened to kill the two people who lived there, to move into their house, and to burn it down. That sounds peaceful to me. Why in the world would anyone find that terrifying? Two against 500? Nah. Oh, and did I mention that the protesters were themselves armed or that they threatened the McCloskeys before the couple went in and got their guns? Oh, and by the way, another thing. Missouri has a castle doctrine law, which gives a person the absolute unmitigated right to protect his or her castle or family while on their property, unquote. Sounds pretty clear to me. It's difficult to understand what Sanders is doing here, but it looks like she's going to be overruled anyway. The McCloskey's rights were violated and their own right to defend their home is also violated. It seems pretty clear. It's a shame that they have to go through all this, but as they are both lawyers, they should be well-equipped to fight this gross injustice. The Missouri Attorney General has moved in to dismiss the charges, and President Trump has also been asked to help, and he says he will do whatever he can. Sounds good to me.
Now, after the break, I have one more short story about an attack by Black Lives Matter on an annual police appreciation event in Denver. And then it's off to see the rest of the world, where Kim Jong-un is once again a story, a series of mysterious explosions and fires have rocked Iran, and China is in deep, deep trouble. Only this time, it isn't the virus, it's floods, big floods, putting millions of lives at risk. So stay tuned. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Well, as we celebrate our four-year anniversary, thank you for making it all possible. We are a grassroots movement of patriots, blogs, podcasts, video, and 24-7 talk radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We are the vision of the voices America Out Loud Talk Radio. It was supposed to be the sixth annual Law Enforcement Appreciation Day event, a family-oriented, back-the-blue event in Denver, supporting the Denver police. And it was set to be held on Sunday, July 19th, as advertised. It was supposed to be family-friendly with food and music. Denver Police Chief Paul Pazin had asked the organizers to reschedule or move to another venue because a Black Lives Matter event was planned nearby and he was concerned that officers might be hurt. He apparently wasn't so concerned that families attending the event might be hurt as well. He just didn't say. He wanted them to move, even though theirs was an annual event held at the same place every year, and the Black Lives Matter event, whatever it was, rally, that that was new. Still, he wanted them to move. But the event was not canceled because, as Randy Corcoran, one of the organizers, told the chief, quote, allow your officers to do their job, and if people are down there breaking the law, to stop them. They'll have nothing to fear from us. We're exercising our constitutional rights, and we have no intention of giving up that ground to these domestic terrorists, unquote. He later told a reporter that this chief of police was a guy who walked hand-in-hand with Black Lives Matter. So, well, anyway, shortly after the family event began, it was invaded by a very large mob of anti-cop rioters. There were actually many more people in the Black Lives Matter mob than in the group of people attending the Back of the Blue event. Well, this crowd of disruptors was organized by Party for Socialism and Liberations, Afro-Liberation Front, and other Black Lives Matter supporters. The Back the Blue family event had barely started when the invaders charged into the family groups, blowing whistles, beating drums, banging pots, shouting obscenities, and throwing punches wherever they had the chance. They swarmed the stage and attacked several women with collapsible batons. They were clearly prepared to create mayhem. Michelle Malkin was among those who were attacked on the stage. She's a well-known conservative blogger, to those of you who are not familiar with her. She's been around for a long time, and she has a lot to say. The police got involved and eventually broke up the melee. Nobody won. 
but for sure, a peaceful family outing supporting the Denver police lost. One woman who helped organize the attack was Lillian House, a member of the Party of Socialism and Liberation. She said that events that support the police are what she called unacceptable, really. According to another BLM supporter, every cop here is a terrorist by association. And this is, as I have said before, more than once, where the barrels of money from people like George Soros are going to disrupt and destroy all that is good in America. And what about the children who came for a family day supporting the police? How traumatizing was that attack? What is wrong with people for whom there are no barriers to bad behavior? What is wrong with the police chief who won't support his own officers and won't let them do their job? And who doesn't, apparently, care about the innocent civilians who might get hurt in the process? Maybe someone will sue him. That would be okay with me. This, my friends, is a slice of what's wrong in America today. As far as I'm concerned, if we don't support our police, we will be living in hell with this kind of chaos and lawlessness as a permanent way of life, and our lives will be full of danger and fear. We have a long way to go before we get back on the right path again. You know, a funny thing happened on my way to getting this program ready today. I saw the craziest headline. It was an article about how Kim Jong-un got really angry at the progress of a hospital construction, and he fired everyone. Wait a minute, I thought Kim Jong-un was dead. I reported that myself way back in the end of April. So I asked my most trusted intel source, and you know what he told me? He told me that Kim Jong-un was still dead. He said that Kim Jong-un in the pictures were either old pictures of the old Kim or photos of one of his doubles. He has or had three of them that we know about. Who, by the way, he said, looks younger and a bit thinner, or was it fatter, than the original Kim. Well, anyway, my friends, to be perfectly frank, I have no idea. This news is just too fresh to, to know where it's coming from and what it means. But it's interesting. Kim was always a puzzle. No one ever knew what he was going to do next. He was last seen in public on April 11th when he showed up for a meeting. And then on April 15th, he was a no-show at North Korea's most important event on the political calendar. It was the Day of the Sun, which is another name for the birthday of his late grandfather, Kim Il-sung. He was the founder of North Korea's current government. So when Kim Jong-un didn't show up, there was a lot of buzz about it. If there was any day of the year that he could be expected to appear, that was it. There was a lot of talk about where he was, why he wasn't there. Some said that he had undergone heart surgery and that he was recovering, or that the surgeon had botched the surgery and he was already comatose and that the surgeon, who was Chinese, had been called back to China and would be severely reprimanded, whatever that means. And then there was another explanation for his absence, 
that he was hiding from the coronavirus, although North Korea has said they didn't have any, any cases of coronavirus in their country. So nobody really knew what the situation was, except that my intelligence source told me that Kim was, in fact, a victim of a botched surgery and that he was either brain dead or truly dead. And that is what I reported to you. The funny thing is that Kim Jong-un is a bit of a show-off. He loves to eat, he loves to drink, and he loves the ladies, particularly the pretty young ones whom he has taken from schools and brought to him. And he loves the limelight, center stage. It's true that he has been known to disappear from time to time, but it has already been three months with no sign of him until now. It's interesting also that his appearance was so low-key that hardly anybody in the media picked it up. That doesn't sound like him. Last winter, when he rode his white horse into the mountains in the snow, he had a whole entourage of newsmen and cameras following him. Well, the rumor mill has been grinding in overdrive since this story came out. What do I think? I'm not sure. I really don't know. But I suspect he's still dead. Nobody really knows what's going on, except maybe the people closest to Kim. I'll stay on this, and I'll keep you posted. In the meantime, here's some real news. In Iran, a series of ghost attacks have been occurring at key sites tied to Iran's military and nuclear programs in various parts of Iran. The attacks include fires and explosions, and nobody seems to know who's behind it, although they have been going on since June. On June 26th, for example, an explosion occurred east of Tehran, not far from the Parchin military and weapons development base. Authorities reported that the explosion was caused by a leak in the gas storage facility outside the base. Another explosion occurred at a medical clinic on June 30th and killed 19 people. This was also blamed on a gas leak. On July 2nd, there was an explosion at Iran's Natanz nuclear facility in central Isfahan province. At first, Iranian officials downplayed it. They said it was just a shed. But intelligence analysts reported that the blast had actually struck Natanz's new advanced centrifuge assembly plant. This attack may actually have stopped Tehran from building advanced centrifuges. But intelligence reports suggest that it probably will not keep Iran from continuing to build its stockpile of low-enriched uranium. Then, last week, seven ships were reported to be burning in the southwestern port of Bersher. And then an explosion destroyed a power plant in Isfahan province, and fire destroyed a cellophane factory in Tabriz. Iranian officials have warned that Tehran will retaliate against any country that carries out such attacks. But it seems that, so far at least, they really haven't any idea who is behind these attacks. They don't know whom to blame. Although, as you might have guessed, America and Israel are at the top of the list. Now we have come to China. China. 
the one that unleashed the Wuhan virus on the world, but didn't tell us about it until it was far too late. And China, the one that has imprisoned more than a million Uyghurs in 85 concentration camps scattered throughout the Xinjiang province in northwest China. And that's what I want to talk about for a bit because it is a side of China that most Americans don't know anything about. But information about what is going on in Xinjiang is starting to come out. The Uyghurs are a Muslim minority and they live in the Xinjiang region of China. They are being systematically rounded up, imprisoned, tortured, and impressed into forced labor. This is a matter of national policy. It is the official policy of the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, and it should tell you a little bit about them, more perhaps than we want to know. The Chinese government consider the Uyghur a threat to national security. Why? Because they are Muslims living in a remote part of China that is rich in natural resources and therefore valuable to the government. So they've built 85 concentration camps, they call them re-education camps, and most of these camps were built between 2017 and 2018, so they're fairly new. At first, China denied the existence of these camps, but after satellite photographs caught the progress of their construction with barbed wire and guard towers, the CCP finally had to admit to their existence, but they call them re-education camps. Phooey! These are concentration camps where the Uyghurs are imprisoned and used for forced labor and also used as human guinea pigs in what the U.S. has called a, quote, horrific campaign of repression, unquote. I have it on good authority that before the Wuhan virus was released to the world, by accident or otherwise, Uyghur prisoners were being used as guinea pigs to test its effects. The Chinese government has gone into these Muslim communities and destroyed more than a hundred mosques. They've also made it illegal for men to grow long beards and for women to wear veils in public. But once members of the Uyghur community are rounded up and brought to these internment centers, these concentration camps, things change dramatically. And whether or not a woman can wear a veil in public is the least of her worries. Stories from former detainees tell of inhuman conditions, forced labor in sweatshops, rape, and medical experiments. The Chinese claim that these camps are vocational training centers, but they won't let reporters in to see them, and they won't share any information about them. But there have been two sources of information that we need to take seriously. Secret documents that were leaked in late 2019 and first-person reports from former inmates who were released or who escaped from China. Here's some of what we know. Former prisoners describe brutal conditions including torture and sleep deprivation. Women have reported rapes and forced abortions. Cameras and microphones are everywhere so that there is virtually no privacy for any of the prisoners. 
There's now a new wrinkle in China's depraved program of arbitrary imprisonment and forced labor. The Australian Strategy Policy Institute estimates that since 2017, at least 80,000 Uyghurs who were formerly imprisoned in Xinjiang have been sent to factories across China, and these factories are using forced Uyghur labor to produce products for 83 global brands in the technology, clothing, and automobile industries, including, are you ready? Apple, BMW, Gap, Huawei, Nike, Samsung, Sony, and Volkswagen. How many of these companies have you bought product from lately? Would you do it again, knowing that it might have been a product of slave labor made by the hands of someone who was forced to work under inhumane conditions in order to make a buck for the Chinese government? I just looked at my own phone. It's a Samsung. I wouldn't buy it again, but I feel badly that I bought it in the first place. Researchers from the Center for Strategic and International Studies say forced labor is a central part of the government's economic development plan for Xinjiang, which, if the plan is carried out, is going to become a hub for textile and clothing manufacturing. So if you understand this about China, that they could do this to anyone as official policy, if you understand what they are doing to the Uyghur people, then you can understand that they are capable of committing almost any crime against humanity, like inflicting the Wuhan virus on the world. So the next time you're shopping for a smartphone or sneakers or a television, the next time you buy a product from China, think twice. China's crimes against humanity go far beyond the virus that they unleashed on us. And we can understand, maybe a little better, the people with whom our government is going to have to deal. And one more quick item. Dr. Fauci said this week that one state got it right. And you know what state it was? I couldn't believe it when I heard it. He said, New York State got it right. Really? <laughs> really? New York, where more than 6,200 people died in nursing homes because the governor insisted on putting COVID patients there, even though he had 2,500 beds on the hospital ship and at the Javits Center nearly empty? I'm finished with Dr. Fauci. Just saying. Well, our time is up for today. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report.